and, um, and so I decided we have three, um, we have three weeks left um, of Wednesday nights before we take the break to go into our home fellowship blitz. So um, there's three chapters in Second Thessalonians. So I thought we'll pick right up there. Second Thessalonians, written by Paul to the church in Thessalonica, there in southern in um, northern Greece, and it was written almost immediately after First Thessalonians. There was a delay of most people think of a matter of months. Um, from when he sent 1 Thessalonians to them, and then he wrote 2 Thessalonians as kind of a follow-up and a clarification, but probably because of some of the information he got as they took his teachings. And you know if you've been with us on Sundays, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5 in particular, he talks about in the rapture in chapter 4. He talks about the day of the Lord and judgment in chapter 5, as we saw this last Sunday. Well, apparently there were some people, there were some crackpots in Thessalonica who were starting rumors of, you know, that, oh, the second coming has already happened. And they were even writing fake letters claiming they were from Paul and everything. And so... He primarily was writing to them in order to make that correction. And then secondly, there was now some persecution that was really kicking up in Thessalonica. And so he wanted to address persecution that they were going through in light of that which uh, you know, was going to come someday. So he was taking prophecy and going, this actually what's happening in the future is connected with and can give you a perspective on what you're going through right now in your suffering. So it's a short letter. Um, basically, almost anyone who, who takes the Bible seriously knows that Paul wrote the letter. The only serious attempts to say that Paul didn't write it, ironically, are from people who say that Second Thessalonians... Um, is too explicit in teaching that obviously Jesus is God. And so they think what, the, what these people say is the idea of Jesus being God didn't come about until um, you know, after 70 AD when the temple fell, and then they started looking for more hope. And that's why, obviously, the Gospel of John is the one that dwells most on the deity of Christ of any of the Gospels. And so they say, well, yeah, it was written almost 100 AD, you know, in the 90s, mid 90s AD. Well, Second Thessalonians has some strong statements of the deity of Christ, and it was written in probably the winter of 50 or 51 AD. And so naturally, people who have a bias go, oh, no, that couldn't have been that early. And yet, all the textual evidence is there. All sort the evidence for Second Thessalonians being legitimate and Pauline, written by Paul, is even stronger than that for First Thessalonians. And it's interesting the people who question Second Thessalonians don't question First Thessalonians, but Second Thessalonians is quoted in early sources. I mean, real early sources of church fathers as being a letter that was written by Paul. People in the in the '60s and '70s who are referencing it, and there were people like Polycarp and others who talked extensively about it. There's even a reference to it in the Didache, which is an early document that was like a church order of worship and things like that. So Paul clearly wrote it, but you knew that. Um, written in the early 50s, perhaps 50, 51, right months after 1 Thessalonians. So let's just jump right into the first chapter here. Paul, Silvanus, which is another name for Silas, and Timothy. And this is one reason, one of the big reasons why they've placed the date so early, by the way, is that 1 Thessalonians, Paul, Silas, and Timothy were together in Corinth. And from comparing this with accounts in the book of Acts, it's the only time the three of these guys were together was just for a short period of time 
in Corinth, and that's why we can place it there. But Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A very similar opening to so many of Paul's letters. The one thing that's a little bit different, if you look at 1 Thessalonians, he, he says, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He changes it up in 2 Thessalonians and emphasizes God being our Father in both cases. And so a little more personal, felt like he had a little more contact with them perhaps. Um, but this is typically from Paul and just a this was a common greeting with the early church to talk about grace and peace. And those are, the, those are gifts from God, gracious gifts from God. And grace and peace is really what life is all about, people trying to find peace. And the only way to find it is through grace. When you really understand grace, the peace just happens. If you are not at peace... There's something missing in your understanding of grace. Either, or perhaps both, if peace is lacking, either you don't understand all that God has done for you and the blessings of his grace, or you haven't translated that into being able to treat other people graciously. Because we basically have two, maybe three relationships in our lives. One of them is a relationship that goes vertically between us and God. The second clear one is horizontal relationships between us and other people. And if there's a third relationship, it would be the relationship with me with myself, trying to figure myself out and all. And in all of those, all three of those relationships, peace is the desire and grace is the method for that to happen. If it starts with a relationship with God, if I understand his grace, I can, as the, uh, as the author of Hebrews, who I believe is Paul, I'm almost certain it was Paul, says, therefore, we can come boldly before the throne of grace that we can obtain help in time of need. See, understanding his grace allows us to just march right into his presence. It allows us to bow our heads at any time and know that God is there, that he is with us. That intimate connection with God happens because we understand grace. People who don't understand grace can't be at peace with God, and as a result, there's just something missing in their relationship with God. And I think religion is a substitute for a gracious relationship with God. And I think there are a lot of people, sadly, who have all the doctrine down. I mean, they know their stuff. They believe the right things. If we're voting on doctrine, they would vote for all the right doctrines. And yet, you look at their lives, and they're trying so hard. They're struggling. They're wrestling. And generally, this is manifested by people who aren't comfortable with themselves, and therefore in that insecurity, they feel like they have to represent themselves differently than they are. They have a hard time being alone. They have a hard time accepting and, and, and appreciating who they are and what they have. And at the same time, they're at odds with other people, but it all stems back to understanding peace with God. And it's amazing how, and I have seen people who, for years and years, are religious people. And I'm not just talking about any religion, I'm talking about the Christian religion. And they follow it, and they believe all the right things, and yet it's an amazing thing when a light clicks on, and there's an epiphany, and all of a sudden they understand grace. All of a sudden they get it. They understand what grace is, they understand the ramifications of that grace, and it's an amazing, life-changing thing that will always end up affecting 
how you deal with yourself and how you deal with others as well. But it starts with peace with God. And, and that becomes a real peace. And so, but if you're not getting along with people, if you're not comfortable in your own skin, you don't like yourself very well, I'm telling you, it all comes back to, do you understand God's grace? And have you taken advantage of what that purchased for you? Because, uh, frankly, I am not... Uh, I, you know, there are some things about religion that are beautiful. You know, I can go into a magnificent cathedral and really appreciate it, frankly. I can read religious writings that are well done and, and, and love and appreciate them and connect with them. Um, so I'm not bagging on religion. I mean, in some ways, what we do when we come to church is involved with religious activity. But the thing is, when it is a substitute for a relationship, it's just tragic. It's really tragic to see people who are so passionately devoted to sacrifice, to discipline, to religion, and they just never come to understand God's grace. It's tragic. It really is. And people who are in that boat and are honest, if you listen to them, it's very touching. If you, if you haven't um, ever looked at it, there's a book recently, and I can't remember the name of it, but somebody who corresponded all, mostly during the life of um, Mother Teresa, um, she, she shared her heart with him in these letters in her journal, basically, and after she died, she okayed it to, you know, the, them to be shared. And, I mean, I don't think there's ever been very many people who were more devoted than she was. An amazing woman in every way. Like our president, she won a Nobel Peace Prize, but she, she actually, you know, you can make a case for it, and... <laughs> And there was no question about who she was going to give it to. It went right to beggars, you know. I mean, it was just given away instantly. And to our president's credit, he has given his to various charities as well. Um, but, you know, he's no Mother Teresa. Let me just make that clear. And neither am I, and neither are very many people that I know, and neither are all the people who now bag on her and suggest bad things about her and everything. When you read her writings, you would be touched with her love of God. But you also are tragically impressed with the fact that she didn't understand grace. And she really didn't have that intimacy that comes from coming boldly before the throne of grace. She was trying to earn it. She was trying to be good enough. And, man, some of the best people in the world don't understand grace. And maybe that's partly why they are such good people. I don't know. I think of um, another Catholic, um, Henri Nouwen, who's one of the most talented and brilliant writers, philosophers of any generation. I would match him up with people who have written in every generation of the church, just beautiful stuff that he produced. And he, he left a thriving career as a, as a top professor at various Ivy League schools, and he moved to Canada to a home for mentally retarded people, and he spent the rest of his life serving people like that. And is, he's amazing that way. And yet, when you read his journals and when you read his writings, you realize, oh, he, he was missing an awareness. He was missing a connection. And I'm not going to suggest for a minute that either of those people weren't saved. I, I can't know the status of people's souls. I, my, my, my gut feeling is reading from what they say, boy, I... I think they really believed what the Bible says you need to believe to become a Christian. They probably believed a bunch of other weird stuff, but so do we. But it, it's just sad when you see someone with such a heart who just hasn't discovered 
that you can relax, that it's okay, that you can take a day off and it's still going to be all right. God is still pleased with you, that, that he loves you as much when you're not doing anything as he does when you are. And so to be freed up from a transactional relationship with God, and by that I mean we make deals with God in order to be close to him. You know, I, I am good so that God will do nice things for me. I am obedient because I don't want to make him mad and all those sorts of things that boil it down to a business deal instead of a relationship. For a lot of people, their human relationships, though, are the same way. We become demanding and we expect people to do certain things for us and we do them for them. And again, all of that is a sign of someone who doesn't get grace. Grace, real grace, means that you don't have to earn it, that you are loved completely and unconditionally, and everything that you needed happened on the cross, and that ought to give you peace. And so that's why this comes up so much in the scriptures. And sorry, I got sidetracked, but man, can I preach on grace. Um, (laughs) Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is not God, it's blasphemous to say that grace and peace come from God and Jesus. I mean, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, God. And it's coming jointly from the two members of the Godhead in this, in this case. I, I don't see how anyone can miss that. Now he says, verse 3, we are bound... It's the, it's the only time he uses this word in this, in this kind of framework. We're bound to thank God always for you, brethren. He's like, I have to. I, I need to. I am compelled to thank God. I have an obligation to thank God for you. And he says, not only do I have obli- obligation, as it is fitting. It's, it's, it's proper. It's appropriate that that's happening as well. Because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. That's amazing. For someone to say that about you when they hardly know you and when they've heard a few Bible questions from you and talked to people who are checking up on you and he's saying, you know what? When I hear about your faith and love, I have to thank God. Obviously, Paul has been praying for them to have these qualities, as we've seen earlier. And now he's going, of course, I better thank God. And it's a good reminder for us that when we pray for things and God answers, we really need to thank him. It's not just that we should thank him. That's what it is fitting. Yeah, you should. But no, you need to. It's important to do this. This is something that's a responsibility that we have to, to, to thank him. And so thanks either God doesn't do much for us or we just don't notice because it's really hard sometimes for us to come up with, hey, things that people are thankful for. And that should be on the tip of our tongue because if God is working, stuff's happening all the time. And Paul's attitude was, I have to. I have to thank him. And it's appropriate. And wouldn't you like this to be said about you? Your faith grows exceedingly. Faith growing. Now, as I said, we're going to see that there was persecution coming Times were getting more difficult for them. Generally, when things get difficult for us, we want to run and hide. When things are difficult for you, this is your opportunity to shine. This is your opportunity to have faith. You don't have all the answers. You don't have all the evidence. So trust him. And it's a great opportunity. The truth is, None of us knows what's going to happen tomorrow. 
None of us knows if our money's going to be in the bank tomorrow, if we're going to have a job tomorrow or a house tomorrow or food tomorrow. Hey, a lot of things can happen that can change a lot of things. But generally, we tend to trust our stuff more than we trust God. So given the fact that we never know what we're going to have, yet when all of a sudden someone comes and tells us, well, you only have a short time to live, we freak out. When we always knew that our breath was in his hand, we always claimed to believe that, hey, Jesus could come back any second. And, and why then, if we really believe that, is it such a bummer when people tell us, you know, you just lost your savings or, you know, you're not going to have a job or this isn't going to happen or that's not going to happen or your health is failing? Why is it such a threat to us? It's because of a lack of faith. And he saw them and he goes, man, you guys are pounding it in faith. It's exceeding. I, I, I see it happening. And that gives you a hint that you're, they're going through hard times because nobody grows in faith without tough times. And then faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. It's as we read the word of God and apply it to the situations in our lives that our faith is able to grow. And so he was thankful. That's one reason, by the way, why Paul could be thankful all the time. <laughs> because good times, appreciate it. Bad times, appreciate that too. It's an opportunity for faith to grow. And again, your love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. I see you guys loving each other, he says. And I just have to thank God for it. And you know, I know as a pastor of a church how much it means to me when I see people who are faithful. When, it, when people... And, and faithful in terms of, there are some people that are just always here, that are just always doing what God's called them to do, that I know I could count on them at any point to ask for a hand, and they would just be there, they'd just show up. And I, and I can't tell you how thankful I am for that kind of faithfulness. And at the same time, and probably even more so, when I see people in our church being loving and caring for each other, when I hear that somebody in the church had a problem and other people in the church gathered around them and ministered to them and encouraged them, um, oh man, I love that. I am so thankful to God for that. Because what, that, what faith and love in the lives of people shows is that you're starting to understand what God wants you to understand. You're starting to get grace. It's happening the truth of his word is, is actually bringing about changes in your lives. And so um, Paul just said, oh man, I love it. I love what I'm hearing about your lives. And, and, it, and he didn't say, oh man, I'm so thankful for the way you love me. He, Paul wasn't into people loving him. He didn't want to get fans. You know, He didn't like, how many friends can I get on my Facebook page? He's like, I want you guys loving each other. It's not about me. I want you guys to love each other, and when you do, I'm thankful. And, and again, this is one of the reasons, and I don't want to harp on it a lot, but why I think encouraging people to be involved in smaller fellowships and home fellowships and stuff is so important because that's where you learn to love each other in a, in a, in a manageable sort of way. You can look at a crowd this size and go, wow, I just love everybody here. But people need individual attention. They need individual understanding. And until you have that kind of closeness that can only be achieved in a small group, then there's something that's going to be missing from your life spiritually. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who doesn't get in a home fellowship here at our church is, is having some huge lack in their life. Because you may have this fellowship somewhere else. You may have it in another church. I, fine, all I'm saying is opportunities to love each other, there isn't anything more important than that. And if you're just looking for a handful of pastors to be able to do all that loving on you, that can't happen in the way that, that 
that love is necessary. And so anyone who's worth their salt is going to say, man, I want you guys to love each other. I get excited when I hear about people who are married who are having problems and they work on those problems and, and, and good things are happening and you know, marriages, relationships are restored, marriages are strengthened, kids are reconciled with parents, all those kinds of things. I love that because that's just another way of saying, wow, God's people are loving each other. I love when somebody in the church meets somebody and, you know, praise the Lord, they're going to get married. It's, it's great. I, some of the greatest honors I have in my life are presiding over people's marriages. And it's not because I think marriage is going to be easy for them. It's not even because I think they have any realistic expectations about marriage. I haven't yet met anyone who got married who had a clue what they were getting themselves in for. <laughs> but, but what makes that happen is... Here is a chance for people to learn to love each other. And you will not learn that, just like faith, you don't learn to love each other until difficulties happen. Because someone who's doing exactly what you want them to do, you don't need to love them. You can pretend to love them. It doesn't matter. But the real test is when they test your love. And that's what makes love difficult it's also what makes it important, and grace is what makes it doable. And so Paul's reading between the lines. He's going, man, I see your faith because you've needed it. And I see your love growing for each other because I know it's been tested. I know it's been difficult. And so he says, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. He's going, you're just hanging in there when the times are tough. And he said, I'm so proud of you that I brag about you to other people. Kind of a little bit of a weird thought, you know, that, that people would brag about you to others, maybe to kind of spur them on. Um, my grandmother was a pro at this, my mom's mom. She, it was so funny because... She would always, when she was, we had, some of our cousins were in Oklahoma and the rest of them were out here more or less in California. And when she was here in California, she would do nothing but brag about our cousins in Oklahoma. And when she was, you know, we just thought she liked them better. But then we got together with them on a rare occasion, started talking, and they thought the same thing about us. You know, they, they go, when she's in Oklahoma, all she does is brag about you guys. The truth is, we were all a mess. There wasn't a lot to brag about about it, and we're all failures. But, but it was her, her cute way of trying to spur us on. And, and it's kind of what Paul was probably doing between churches, of just going, these guys really have it together. It would be sort of like if you go to some friends who are married, and you start telling them about somebody else who's married and how, you know, they're, they're, they're really, you know, they do little surprises for each other. They have a date night or this or that. You know what? It, I mean, guys, you know what it does. It shames you into doing it. And, <laughs> and so it, it's kind of what Paul, I think, was doing here. But, uh, but he goes, I see your trouble. I know what you're going through. But instead of being bummed about your tribulation... I'm excited about the way you're handling the tribulation. How would you feel if when you went to someone and they said, how are you doing? And you go, man, I've been sick lately. And frankly, I'm, I'm kind of depressed. And things aren't going well at work. My kids hate me. I think my marriage is on the rocks. I could really use prayer. And they go, I'm just glad you're doing so well in light of everything that you're facing. There are some people that, honestly, when they sit there and tell you what they're going through, you're like, why are you smiling? I mean, this is crazy. But our goal of faithfulness ought to be that we go more like this. <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. The week I've had, it's unbelievable. I mean, I lost my job. I, you know, I think my marriage is on the rocks. Kids won't talk to me. It's like, but you know, God's good, and I'll, I'll be okay. I'm going to get through this, and I'm going to... It would be so different. 
Because people wouldn't be dragged down by your garbage. They would be lifted up. You know, I can't, it, it's, it's stunning when you talk to someone who has just found out that, that they have months to live and they're saying to you, but I'm ready to go. I'm looking forward to heaven. I want to be with Jesus. Don't feel bad for me. And I've heard it, and I've talked to several people who were like, yeah, you know, they have some other treatments that they want to do, but I, I just want to go to heaven anyway. I'm over this world. And so, no, no, I'm cool. I'm fine. Are you kidding me? I've never been better. I mean, that is so encouraging compared to the way we usually do it. What's the difference between a person who goes, I can't believe it, I just lost my job, and now I don't know what's going to happen, but God is good. What's the difference between that guy and the guy who's like, I just want to die because I lost my job, I can't get another job, life stinks, people hate me. Well, that person's trying to get sympathy. Sympathy never helped anybody. Sympathy never caused anyone to get off their rear and go make something happen. Sympathy just allows people to stay where they are. It's like saying, oh yeah, you're right, you should kill yourself. <laughs> you know? But the difference between those two attitudes is faith. Okay, lousy things have happened to you. Lousy things happen to everyone. What's your perspective? It's, it depends on your faith. Either you believe God and can share your trials with a smile on your face, with a sense of, but I know everything's going to be fine, and I'm okay. And then, see, if you have faith, what do you do? There's a reason why faith means two different things. Faith means belief, and faith means consistent effort. You know, you say somebody is faithful, it means that they're always there. They're always showing up. Well, how do you get faithful? By having faith. But it's funny, if you're not faithful, life just gets more unlucky all the time. And, and there are some people who, because of sympathy, they never really learn faithfulness. They never learn to get it going. And so, in some ways, you, you can't stand it when people just, you know, are all syrupy, happy-go-lucky, especially about your problems, you know, you'd rather have them weep with those who weep a little bit. And there's a place for that. I mean, you know, it's, you know, when somebody young loses a spouse, you know, you don't just tell them, hey, but now you're available. You know, I mean, there's, you got to have a balance here. But the point is, yeah, more than one fish in the sea, you know, cool, great. He was a loser anyway. But, but see, when trials come, faith is what gives us the strength to react the way we ought to act. And therefore, to show faith and, and patience, which is a big part of it, and love, even when it doesn't look like it makes sense to do that. And these young Christians in Thessalonica had figured that out, and Paul was just really stoked about it. And he says, uh, in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. That's kind of a weird thing, and he's referring to what he's going to be talking about. We'll see next week. He goes into a longer discussion of the day of the Lord, of the tribulation period and the judgment that immediately follows it. But he's saying, your tough times, but you're handling it so well, is, as he says, manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. And he says that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. That may strike you as weird, but I think as we go through the next verses and into the next chapter, you see that he's making the point that there are two categories of people. Those who are going to be judged by God for their sins and those whose sins have been forgiven by God's grace and they are not destined for this future judgment. 
And so what he's saying is the way you're handling your tribulation actually brings glory to God concerning future judgment. And, and a part of the formula is, and, and, it, and you can see it as we read on, a part of the formula is going to be, you know what, the more people treat you poorly and the more sin, the more corruption there is in this world, in this land, in this nation, everywhere, the more justified God is the fact that someday he's shutting it down. Someday he's going to step on it. Some, there are some people that just won't get it, and they just need to be eliminated. And some people would struggle with God doing that, but he's saying, what you are doing, you're showing. Okay, people are doing bad things to you, and you're responding in a loving way, in a faithful way. So he goes, that shows that God is righteous. Because not only is God's righteousness seen in the way you are acting, but the fact that some people reject that righteousness is seen in the way that the people who are persecuting you are acting. And so he said, a line, the idea is a line is being drawn, and God is glorified either way. Because he is going to take care of you, and he is going to take care of them. If not in this life, certainly in the age to come. And so let's just read on, and I think you'll kind of get the flow of that. He says, It's manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's using a little irony here, because in verse 4, see where it says, in all your persecutions and tribulations? The word there for tribulations is the Greek word thalipsis. And that's the word when it talks about the tribulation with a capital T, it, it uses that term. Now, it, it means, you know, pressure and, and uh, you know, an aggressive kind of an attack and things like that. But, but it's also a specialized word referring to in the day of the Lord, the great tribulation. So now he also, now the word for... Um, it down in verse 6, those who trouble you is a Greek word, phlebo, which is a less severe, it's more of a minor irritant kind of trouble. So at first he shows how bad it is by calling it thalipsis, tribulation. But now all of a sudden he's building this bridge to eschatology, to the study of future things, and he's saying they are giving you tribulation, but they're going to get a tribulation that makes what you've endured look like something much less severe. So he's setting off this thing, and he's going, they can tribulate or trouble you, but believe me, they are going into a time of trouble, Jacob's trouble, as it's called, that is going to even the score and I guess they were supposed to take some comfort in that. Um, but at any rate, it gives some perspective as he now moves toward this discussion of future things. Now, he said, and, and this is interesting, he says he's going to repay with tribulation, same word he used in verse 4, those who trouble Thlebo, you, and to give you who are troubled rest. Boy, doesn't that sound good? And he says, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is, you have to watch the us and them things in these prophetic passages to really, because it shifts quite often. Remember, months before in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul 
expected to be there for the rapture, right? He said, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. So that was his expectation. He also saw in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians that this day of judgment was impending as well, which is one of the reasons why I believe they come on the same day. I believe the tribulation starts when the rapture happens, and we'll get into that a little more now. Now he is saying there is a time of tribulation, but you're not going to be there. And I'm not going to be there because he's going to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. So he goes, me and you, we're going to be resting when this punishment is dished out. Do you, can you kind of see that? I mean, I, to me, it's pretty plain. I don't want to stack the deck uh, for my position, but as I read it, I, you know, I can believe that people could have another interpretation, but, but why would Paul think that he was going to make it to the rapture, but not think that he was going to be there at the second coming of Christ for judgment. Because it's clear, he's saying, you know, you're going to be resting and I'm going to be resting when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two categories of people. Um, commentators will make a big distinction between them. I don't know if that's necessary but they would, they would generally think that those who do not know God would have been more people who don't know anything about God, the Gentiles who aren't saved, and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ would probably be Jews who ought to know better, Jews who have heard the gospel and yet they're not responding to it. It's, it's all about vengeance, though, and so... When he's talking about those who don't know God, um, I, 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 I have a hard time thinking that he's meaning people who have, have just never even heard. We're not sure how he's going to deal with that. We know that punishment is greater on people who have heard than people who don't. There's no doubt about it. We know there's no salvation except through Jesus Christ. We know an awful lot of people are heading to condemnation, but his talk here is specifically to address the vengeance angle of people who are persecuting believers in this particular in this particular case but at any rate if you don't obey the gospel you don't respond to it and if you don't know god if you don't have a relationship with him uh, you, you have some problems you need to look into that verse 9 these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day. You know, there, there is a lot of debate nowadays, um, not as much among people who really take the Bible really literally and seriously, but, but some who do, who still have an issue with with hell being something that lasts eternally. Um, it, it just, I mean, you go, well, hey, somebody sins for 70 years. Should they really burn for millions and millions and millions of years? And, and there's some logic involved there. And, and there are some scriptures that are talking about hell that if you just looked at them in isolation, you can understand why some people might believe in um, annihilation is usually the term that's used to refer to it, that you go to hell, you burn, and you eventually burn up, and, and it's all over. Um, and, you know, it, and admittedly, probably half of the verses that talk about hell have used the kind of language that, you know, you could see someone going, well, yeah, I mean... Even over in, in John 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he talks about, you know, that you should not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, perish generally means to go away. Well, there are a lot of 
verses, you know, like that. Um, but, but there are also an equal number of verses at least that refer to the punishment continuing forever. Forever and ever where the worm dieth not and all those kinds of things. And this is one of them. Because you go, well, it's destruction, right? And everlasting destruction, couldn't it mean that they're destroyed forever? Well, no, because the word for destruction means to be being destroyed. And if it's everlasting destruction, that's something very specific. And this term would, has, is never used anywhere, biblically or extra-biblically, to mean anything but something that continues indefinitely. So if you want to believe that hell just lasts for a while and eventually everyone's either saved or some people are annihilated or whatever, you have to deal with verses like this that is pretty plain that this kind of, this destruction is something that lasts. It would seem like a contradiction, everlasting destruction, but you can continue to be destroyed forever. And, and as, you're, as we read on, we kind of see what it's about. It's from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. It's someone being in a place where they can't be with God. That's destructive. That's, that's horrible. That's devastating. You know from the times when you just kind of backslide or you fall out of fellowship with the Lord, you do something stupid and you're not wanting to admit it yet. And how destructive that is in our lives when we when we aren't close to God, and and in the same way, it's like that for eternity, devastating, and so. But he's saying being away from the presence and the glory of God's power, which is something that matters, as he goes on to share. But he says when he comes in that day, to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ." He says he's going to come on that day and be glorified, as he says, in his saints and be admired by all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Well, this is a time when he's coming to destroy, flaming fire, taking vengeance. He's clearly talking about at least two different aspects of the coming. And he's saying... We are in one category, and people who don't know God are in another category. And so for us, we look forward to the future and going, man, God's going to be glorified in us. We actually will get our glorified bodies, and when we see each other, we will see the glory of God. Now, there is a part of God's glory in everyone. I mean, there, we were created in the image of God, but with a lot of people, maybe with most people, it's hard to see. I mean, there are a lot of people that I can just look at them and see God's glory on the right day at the right time. Um, (laughs) There are some people, man, you got to really squint. you got to really look for it. Maybe the IMAX 3D glasses would help. But in heaven, a a switch is flipped, And we will know as we are known, and we will be like him, John says. You know, beloved, now are we the sons of God. It hasn't yet appeared what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we'll see him as he is. Everyone that has this hope in him glorifies him, you know, uh, uh, purifies himself even as he is pure. So there's that day, and that seems to be what he's talking about. All of a sudden, the glory of God is obvious on everyone. And when you see everyone, you'll just be blown away by God and by who he is. And you'll praise him and you'll be grateful and you'll be so glad you're a part of this assembly. 
And can you imagine the celebration when we all get to heaven? There was that old, uh, the, the old hymn that said, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. Well, that's what he's talking about. There's a day in the future for us of incredible celebration, incredible glory. But there's a day, and it's at the same time, I think, that people are going to face who have rejected Jesus Christ, and that will be a devastating day. But as he says... We also pray for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good desire of his goodness and the work of faith with power. That the, and remember to follow it through that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so the difference between people who make it and people who don't is responding to the grace of God, responding to the gospel. You don't get there. He's not saying, man, I pray that you guys will be good enough because I really want you there. He's gone, I pray that I see you there and we get there by the grace of God. It's all God doing it. So it's another way of saying, I just pray that you know God. I pray that you've responded to him that you've allowed him to to have your life and and i like this in verse 11 um he says as he prays for him it's a beautiful prayer because he prays that god would count them worthy of this calling and that god would fulfill all the good pleasure of goodness his is in italics it's not in the original and the work of faith with power. So two little requests that he threw in there. The first one, that God would fulfill all the good pleasure of goodness. And, and that's a, an awkward sentence in English, but the, the meaning of it is, he said, I am praying that basically everything that's good for you, everything that will be pleasant, everything that could ever make your life full, I'm praying that that happens. And, I, and I, I just love that as a prayer for someone, and I pray that for people specifically often. God, just allow this person to reach their fullness of potential. Allow them to use their abilities and their gifts to the, to the, to the utmost. And I'm thankful when I see it happen. I'm thankful when I see someone stretched. And get to share what God's doing in their life because it's like, yeah, that's it. He's, he's filling you up. Now, we're like a balloon. The only way you're going to get full is if you're going to be stretched. You know, a balloon sitting there, no problem. But for a balloon to really be a balloon, it needs to be blown up. And that's kind of what he's praying. He's like praying for pleasure and blessing to blow them up to make them full, to be their portion, to be their part, that, that they would have the best life that they can possibly have, that they will have the, most, the greatest blessings that they could have for their lives. I, I love that. And the work of faith with power. I'm praying in the meantime, too, that you'll have the strength to hang in there, that you will work despite difficulties, because that work reflects faithfulness. And he, you know, later on is going to talk about, you know, that, that how important it is. If you don't work, you shouldn't eat. But this is it. He's going, I pray that you'll work faithfully because that is intimately connected with the, the previous phrase. You'll never have, you'll never fulfill the good pleasure of goodness until you work, the faith is there with power. And it's God's grace that allows us to do all that. And ultimately, he will be glorified in us. You know, and, and that's what we should want. That should be the goal of our lives, is that our lives, when people look at us, Christ may be glorified in you and 
you and him. I mean, isn't that beautiful? To pray that, that when people would see us, they would think good things about God. And that people would see God, they would think good things about us. I mean, I love that combination. I love that he, he juxtaposes those in, a, in what could be a confusing kind of a statement, but it's true. You know, there are some people that when I see them, it just makes me love God more. There are other people that when I love God more, I, I care more about the person. It works, it works both ways. But what he's saying is, it's all about people seeing God. And if God is glorified in us, and then we in turn are glorified in him, there's that connection. It's the total package. He goes, that's what we want. And that's the picture that he is, is suggesting as being, that's what I'm praying for you guys. And it's really cool that when people are going through a hard time, <laughs> he had a perspective that he wasn't like, I am just praying for you all the time because I know how miserable you must be. He's going, I see what you're going through, man. I know I've been there. I'm excited to see what God's going to do. I'm looking forward to seeing how you grow through this trial. I'm, I'm, I know that this is God. I know he is in this. I know he's going to draw you closer to him as a result of it. And he'll be glorified, and so will you. You will become the best you can be as a result of what you're going through. That's faithfulness. That's faith. That's grace. That's what it means to be a Christian, really. And so, again, all of that is about what God is doing in the future. He's working in our lives. He's drawing us close. Someday he's going to take us to be with him. Don't worry if you're having a hard time resting right now. You're going to be able to rest there. I'm glad, I'm glad he included that because, you know, I just don't want to play the harp every day. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm happy doing stuff in heaven. I know that'll be cool, but I, I wouldn't mind kicking back for, you know, a few millennia just to get things going. And, uh, but, uh, but there's this dark side that he introduced. The people who are messing with you are messing with me, and I have a plan for them, and it's ugly. And we'll see it when we get into chapter two next week and some really important scriptures to understand prophetically and some important applications as well. Let's pray. God, thanks for this evening, giving us this time to um, go through this book of Second Thessalonians. And Boy, we see the love that Paul has for these Christians. We've been seeing it on Sunday mornings. We see it now here. And these two little books are just packed with stuff that, a lot of it, we don't have it anywhere else. These are some of the clearest statements of theology and of practice that are contained in the Bible. And so thank you for inspiring Paul to write these things, for causing the Thessalonians to save them, for allowing the church to see that these were breathed from you, and for preserving your word over all these centuries so that we could get together in the middle of the week and hear something that comes straight from you. So Lord, thank you for who you are, for what you're doing in our lives. And help us this week to rejoice over the blessing of having the privilege of suffering for the sake of your kingdom to prepare us for knowing you more. And we do pray that, Lord, would you please come quickly? There's... There's a lot of forces out there that their punishment is long overdue. Satan and his horrible demons, people who choose rather to go that direction than to receive your grace, they spit in your face. And then, Lord, there are people who are innocently suffering and, and they'll be delivered. 
when you make things right. And so we do pray that you would come quickly, but in your perfect timing, because there are people that you still want to save. So do that, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.